Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Antarctica. It's full of explorers and scientists and... We are looking for people who are antisocial, but social enough. <laughs> I can say that I am my weirdest self around these people because they know who I am and I can just be myself. <laughs> You'd meet doctors and lawyers and poets in the dishwashing station because that's their doorway into Antarctica. What kind of person works in Antarctica? And what kind of person works in the world's most southerly post office and convenience store and goes back to the continent over and over again for 25 years? Hello, I'm Tudor Morgan. I'm a polar addict. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. I don't know about you, but when I picture Antarctica, I picture, well, I mean, besides ice and penguins, I picture no-nonsense, rugged scientists all wrapped up in the latest cold-weather gear using state-of-the-art equipment to measure icebergs, track climate change, and overall being really serious. And yeah, anyone who travels all the way to this giant freezing landmass, away from their friends, family, adorable pets, and weather that doesn't require multiple layers of clothing, has to share some level of resolve and focus. But it turns out that even though all sorts of people work in Antarctica, this continent is only truly hospitable to a select, rare breed of human being. Today, you're going to break the ice, sorry, with a few of those very special human beings. Later, you'll meet Tudor Morgan, who's been returning to the continent for over 25 years. One of his gigs was running the world's most southerly post office and convenience store. But first, come with me to the South Pole, the very bottom of planet Earth. Americans have been exploring and researching here since 1956. According to the National Science Foundation, that research has three goals— to understand the region and its ecosystems, to understand its effects on and responses to global processes such as climate, and to use the region as a platform to study the upper atmosphere and space. The average temperature here is around negative 56 degrees Fahrenheit, with highs around 7 degrees, and lows can dip down to around negative 117 degrees. And right now, during its seven-month-long winter, there are only 39 people mingling down here. And although these three guests of mine that you're about to meet do very different things, their work at the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station overlaps, maybe more than you think. Meet physician Ted Lee, sous chef Lisa Minnelli, and Tony Traub. Tony is a supply technician and a wasty. What's a wasty? Uh, wasty is a colloquial term we use here in Antarctica. Um, it's a waste technician. I help box up all of the um, waste that we use here on station. Um, so just like landfill, um, 
you know, stuff like that, uh, recycling, just helping you get off continent. So let's back up, Tony. How did you end up at the South Pole? Is there a nutshell version of it that is like the, because you must get that question a lot. Yeah. People are like, you're, you're insane. Why are you down there? Yes. <laughs> I just graduated college in uh, March of 20 or May of 2020. Congratulations. Thank you. I was not ready to go into the workforce and, and sit down and have a real job. So I was like, let's do something crazy. Um, and one of my friends from back home, he spent a couple winters and summer seasons in McMurdo station. And so I decided to follow in his footsteps and come down here and it worked out really well. I left my home in November and we had to do a bunch of quarantine um, and COVID tests to get down here to make sure that we didn't bring COVID to Antarctica. What did it feel like when you first gazed upon this giant block of ice, this famous part of our world that so few people have been to? Like, what did that feel like? Uh, Definitely surreal. I'm from Southern California and I've never seen that much snow in my entire life. I mean, no one's seen this much snow, but like, I mean, I've, I've seen little patches on the side of the road that were muddy, you know, (laughs) I've never experienced snow really to any normal extent. And so to come here and just be thrown into a snow continent was absolutely incredible. Um, Yeah, it's, it's like another planet down here. Do you feel, speaking of being on another planet, do you feel isolated kind of like you would if you were on another planet but you can actually breathe i would say it's a that's a two-sided question with yes i feel isolated because i only see 38 other faces every day and they're great faces to look at don't get me wrong i like everyone that i live with here but it's it's strange i haven't seen a stranger in months <laughs> but on the other hand i'm still very connected to the world you know it's it's really great to have internet, you know, to be doing a Zoom call like this and, uh, you know, to be interviewed across the world. And, you know, I still get to talk to my family. There's a really large sense of community here. So you don't really feel that isolated. I wonder if because you see the same people all the time, you kind of have to be your best self in a way. I mean, don't get me wrong. You have, you're going to be yourself. And I imagine, and I'll ask this later, if there's a certain kind of person that works there. But like, if you see the same people all the time, then you can't be like a drama queen. (laughs) (laughs) Unless, am I wrong? (laughs) I would say I came into this not knowing anyone. I'm I'm a single individual coming down to a new continent in a new community. You know, I could be whoever I wanted to be if I wanted to, you know, pretend to have a fake British accent. I could have maybe got away with it for a day or two. But... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and you know, you put your best foot forward. You want to, you know, show everyone I'm, I'm a normal human, you know, I'm not going to go weird on anyone when we're isolated by ourselves. And then, you know, we are halfway through our winter season here. And I can say that I am my weirdest self around these people because they know who I am and I can just be myself. (laughs) So do you think when the winter's over, you're going to head on back to California or is this someplace that you want to stay or come back to over and over again, or is this something in between? A lot of people here love coming back. You know, it's, it's a seasonal job, a seasonal contract job. We are contract workers that are funded through the National Science Foundation and people love coming down here. It's an incredible life experience and people just want to keep living it. Personally, for me, I 
love this. I, I miss my dog a lot. <laughs> if, if we could bring dogs to Antarctica, I would say, heck yeah, I'm coming back every year. But <laughs> I think my dog is a huge factor and I might be coming home to my dog forever. <laughs> the other part of your title is supply technician. What does that mean? Um, we have a lot of supplies needed on station. I mean, we can't run to a grocery store if we, if we need something, you know, if we run out of pencils, we're out of pencils <laughs> for the season, you know, can't go to CVS. Nope. No, no close CVS. No, <laughs> no Amazon, <laughs> no Walmart, no target, no, no, Etsy. Well, we do get Amazon during the summer seasons. When planes come in, you can order Amazon packages. It takes couple months to get down there's no two-day delivery but (laughs) no prime to antarctica (laughs) no prime will not help you down here (laughs) but in the winter season we have no flights so everything that we have on station is what we have and what we're going to work with so my department as a supply technician is to help the department find and um, give you the, the supplies needed so like with lisa um our chef every tuesday i with my team, um, deliver the food from our arches upstairs because all of our food is frozen unless it's from the greenhouse. And so, you know, every Tuesday I'm, I'm loading up four giant carts worth of frozen food and bringing it up to station. And like um, with uh, Ted's position, being the physician, I just helped them count all of their medical storage stuff, which was so fun. <laughs> <laughs> but just making sure we have everything needed in case something, you know, we have some kind of medical anything, we have everything that's. Um, ready for us. So when you go back to your dog in California, what do you think you're really going to miss about Antarctica? I'm going to miss definitely the, um, (laughs) the auroras. Those are really cool. I've seen the Aurora Australis has been incredible. Yesterday was one of our, my other supply technician, my, my cohort, my cohort, it was her birthday. And so we went out to this like, uh, we call it a scuba shack. It's basically what you bring to Antarctica and you don't want to take back home with you, you leave. And it's called scuba, which is named after the native bird to Antarctica, which is a scavenger bird. So you go in there and it's just like random clothing, random. I found um, a book of spells. We brought that back, <laughs> but, but we went out there and, you know, you step, we step outside of the cart that took us and the auroras were just popping off and it's like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I live in Antarctica and I'm going shopping and it's pitch black outside and it's 2 PM and I'm, you know, shopping in a room full of clothes that were previously owned by people. And there's auroras just above my head, like casual. <laughs> That's the scene you'll miss. Yes. And having a delicious food made for me every day. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? That's a perfect segue to Lisa who is our chef. Uh, Lisa, will you introduce yourself? Make sure we say it correctly. Um, Yeah, I'm Lisa Minnelli. I'm the sous chef on station for this year. I've been coming down to Antarctica since 2014, and I've had the privilege and honor to work at all three stations. But right now you are at the South Pole Station. Yes. Which is the best station? Oh, you can't ask that. <laughs> There's pluses. And the minuses. name of my show is Audacious, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, South Pole is audacious because um, we have 39 people which have become family. So, yeah, people can be themselves. Um, you have meltdowns, you have tears, you have happiness. 
um, what Tony was saying, the auroras and walking outside. I finally went outside, like really went outside on Saturday. I got dressed. I went for a walk and you're all by yourself lying in snow, staring up at the heavens. And it's like the most amazing experience you can imagine. How did you get to where you are? Let's back it up. Okay, I went to college. Um, I went to the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, and my best friend Lisa, we were known as Double Trouble, would find us very bizarre jobs on the weekends. And she'd just bounce up to me and say, okay, I got us a job. And I never asked. I was like, okay, who's driving? Um, so she started in the program in 2012, and she's like, it's amazing. You want in? And I want, yep. And all of my friends were like, what about this? And what about that? I'm like, no questions, just follow. And I never regretted it. To be a chef anywhere other than the South Pole seems like it would be different than being a chef in the South Pole. You know what I mean? Like, how? So how is being a chef at the South Pole different than being a chef anywhere else other than your food orders coming in on time and more regularly? You have to think on your feet. We try to work with recipes because it makes the ordering easier when you think that your food is going to arrive once a year. You need to know what menu items you're going to be making for how many people, how many pounds of this and how many quarts of that. So we try to work with the, the recipes and you pull one like the other day I made tikka masala and they're like, this is the best tikka masala. And I laugh because it's like a one and done. I didn't have all the <laughs> ingredients. So being very flexible, thinking on your feet um, and improvising. You always need to improvise. Still was the best tikka masala. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not good that I can make it again. <laughs> so I'll ask what I asked Tony. Do you think you're going to come back if you leave again or what? Ooh, I started in 2014 and it was going to be a one time contract and uh, I've still been coming back. I have my uh, applications in for next season. It's kind of up in the air. It's like, you know, I put like seven applications in and say, if you need me, I'm here. Where do you want me? Which station can I go to? It's very unlikely I would do another winter. It's physically hard. We're at an altitude of like 9,000 something feet and you feel that altitude. You feel the cold. I'm really looking forward to like hanging out on a beach somewhere and being really warm. What do you think you'll miss the most? The people that I meet. They're from all walks of life. Like our dishwashers. You meet doctors and lawyers and poets in the dishwashing station because that's their doorway into Antarctica. I'll, I'll miss the friends that I make down here if I don't come back. When we get back. You have to rethink yourself coming down here. You have to be willing to relearn who you are and you can put your best foot forward. This is just the tip of the iceberg, sorry getting to know these folks who work at the South Pole. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. 
Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, we're learning more or less what kind of person works in Antarctica. Later on, you'll meet a man who's been returning to work there for over 25 years. But right now, we're spending a little time with three people who work at the Amundsen-Scott South Pole Station. You've just met supply technician and waste manager Tony Traub and sous chef Lisa Minnelli. And now I want you to meet Ted Lee. Most recently, he's worked in emergency medicine in Manhattan. And so I asked him, how did you get from this big, populated, noisy, busy city to the South Pole? I heard about Antarctica for the first time based on a podcast with uh, a Scottish physician who worked for the British Antarctic Survey. And he described this experience that seemed so rich and so colorful that uh, it planted a seed. I was in residency at the time and I uh, ended up applying after a few years of working. Uh, Didn't think much of it and uh, ended up getting an interview and coming here over the course of uh, uh, of 2020. Um, It was a little bit of a hectic year with the pandemic. So uh, there were a couple of things that were challenging that year and I was ready to come by the end of it. So when you arrived at the South Pole, what did you know you would be doing? Because when I think about a physician in the South Pole, I think you're maybe doing some checkups for people who maybe have like a pain somewhere or discomfort, anything from that to if something really scary happens and you need to triage and um, help someone in severe crisis. Is that about right? Or what did you know you would be doing there for sure? We have a really broad spectrum of responsibilities here, and the vast majority of it is exactly what you're describing, a a very basic clinic in the U.S. for cuts, scrapes, bruises, coughs, colds. Before I came here, I had read somewhere that it's harder to evacuate from a South Pole station than it would be to evacuate from the International Space Station. The first meeting that we had here confirmed that we learned that a medical evacuation would take about four weeks. So in addition to all of the uh, daily illnesses that may come through, a large component of the job is being prepared for disasters and emergencies. So there was a lot of training for being able to be prepared to use the ventilator, to be able to manage if COVID were to come on station, to be able to manage someone who is extremely ill there have also been cases before, not necessarily in the South Pole, but historically, cases like appendicitis, people with problems with their gallbladder. Uh, so a lot of what we do here is contingency planning and making sure that we have all of the potential complications figured out. You'd mentioned, you know, you have to be prepared in case COVID comes 
when you said that, I thought, well, how would that happen? How does anybody even catch a cold? Because like someone has to bring it, right? The NSF, the National Science Foundation, was very cautious this year. So we underwent a three-week quarantine process, thorough testing throughout, symptom monitoring. By the time we got on station, I felt confident that COVID had not come here. Because of the quarantine period and because we uh, were able to successfully keep COVID at bay as a side effect, we also were able to keep away any of the common colds and flus that usually make it to Antarctica. So this year, it's been a very calm season from a respiratory infection standpoint. How do you like that? I mean, I think about when you are in medicine, you know, you don't normally like to just chill out. That's not <laughs> typically in your nature, but, and I'm not, certainly you have other, other stuff to do. So that being said, what other stuff is keeping you busy? And do you wish you were busier without the pain and suffering of the people you're with? Coming from the emergency department, um, it's nice to have a bit of a break. If you work in any emergency department in the United States, it can be a very busy and sometimes stressful environment to be in. One of the things that they wanted to learn during the interview was exactly what you asked, uh, how if you take someone who is always working towards someone, I think that's pretty common among many, uh, many people in, in healthcare. People are generally hard workers and wanting to always strive and get to the next uh, rung on the ladder uh, what would it be like to be in an environment where you don't have that stimulation? Uh, you don't have a packed waiting room full of patients. For me, it's been nice to be able to take a break from the busy environment of working in hospitals in the U.S. And there's been plenty of things here uh, that I've been doing to keep busy. I've been uh, playing the guitar, playing the piano, then doing some yoga, and I've been able to catch up on a lot of books as well. When you eventually leave Antarctica and work somewhere else, is part of you like bracing for the shock of it all? Considering all you just said about like, it's it's just not like anywhere else in the world uh, that you've ever worked. And so like, how are you mentally, are you mentally thinking about like what's next for you and how you'll adapt? Most of the people on station are talking about travel and one of the things that I had been looking forward to uh, is going to the exact opposite environment, uh, a place in Southeast Asia or, or South Asia where I can get the stimulation of noise and sounds and smells and people. And as soon as I said that, uh, one of the veterans here told me, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> have an intermediate phase where you can get accustomed to society and get used to things before you completely dive in. And uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to take that advice and uh, try to take things easy for the first part of travel. As far as coming back to the U S and getting used to uh, life back into society, I think there will be some challenges to that. I think that, the environment here is so has become so routine for many of us. We see familiar faces. We're used to the responses and the personalities that we get um, that we have here, and the responses that we get uh, during our conversations. 
that it may be a little bit of a shock to meet new people and to all of a sudden uh, get different types of responses to um, our typical day-to-day interactions. And um, I think that'll be some, uh, take a little bit of a period of adjustment. I think seeing the sun for the first time will also uh, be a shock to our eyes. How long has it been since you've seen the sun? It's been, um, let's see, three, I guess the sunset at the end of March. So it's been a little over over three months at this point. What do you think that's doing to you? I'm loving it. So far, I haven't noticed anything that I've missed with the sun. Uh, it's been one of the biggest concerns coming here for me is how my body and my mind would cope without having uh, something that's so important for life. And so far, I've had so many other things to um, be able to stimulate my mind with. Uh, with the sun gone, I find that the environment's actually so much more dynamic here uh, between the southern lights, between the stars, um, and even the location of the stars that, that changes from day to day. You can almost... Uh, you can almost determine what time it is based on the location of the Milky Way and, and the stars. And that dynamic sky has allowed us to um, be able to be okay with not having the sun. I'm not sure that I could do it for several more months, uh, but certainly for this time, what else has come with it has uh, more than made up for its absence. So what do you think you'll miss the most? Walking outside at night, and hearing your footsteps, hearing nothing but the sound of, of silence and wind, looking up and seeing the green and the reds of the sky and being able to have uh, so much space uh, to ourselves and just this infinite expanse of snow and ice. Uh, it's something that I'll probably never experience without coming back here. and. Um, so few people have experienced it. Uh, that's going to be one of the biggest things that I miss. And one of the uh, things that I would say uh, would be a big factor in uh, my encouraging other people to make it out here and to experience it for themselves. Well, I've asked everything I planned on. Uh, Tony, Lisa, Ted, is there anything I missed? I know we, there's a thousand things to talk about, but what did I miss? Um, I would just add that, you know, this has been an amazing experience that so few people on earth get to enjoy. There's been 1,618 people who have wintered over. I mean, that's, that's isn't that less people that have been to space? Yeah. <laughs> um, and then beyond that, I am the 244th woman to have wintered over at the South Pole. You know, less than 300 women have been down here what I'm doing right now. And that's just an incredible legacy to be carrying on. Lisa, anything else that I missed? It's, you have to rethink yourself coming down here. You don't have the support group from your friends and your family. You have to be willing to relearn who you are. You can like kind of reinvent yourself. You're coming down to a place where nobody knows you and you can put your best foot forward. And uh, something that Ted had mentioned with medical, I'm on the ERT team. I work with Ted. I'm a cook. Every week I'm in medical learning things that I never thought I would ever learn before. 
learning how to work the x-rays, learning how to take blood. It's, it's a crazy ride down here. Ted, did I miss anything? I remember reading an article about Antarctica and the types of people who come here. The description was interesting. It, it said that uh, we are looking for people who are antisocial, but social enough. <laughs> and in many ways, uh, that seems to be a common theme. A lot of people who are fiercely independent and are able to still be a part of this community, still be able to contribute to it. And um, I think that that's a unique trait that I haven't really seen in many other places. There's a, a saying that went around station that you have to be an underachieving extrovert or an overachieving introvert to be here. <laughs> Tony Traub, Lisa Minnelli, and Ted Lee. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you very much for having us. This is great. Thank you, Kayan. It was a pleasure. After the break. I can't believe I'm here. You know, just overwhelmed with uh, with joy. Also, disbelief. You know, I sort of felt like I belonged here. Meet a man whose resume includes running the world's most southerly post office and convenience store. I'm Kayan Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. so cold I'll have you know that if I cross my fingers I hope you're worth my linger for a little while This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. What kind of person works in Antarctica? Specifically, what kind of person returns to the continent over and over again over the course of 25 years? And what kind of work has he done, in addition to running the world's most southerly post office and convenience store? That's Tudor Morgan, and he's kind of a big deal. Back in 2013, he was awarded the Queen's Polar Medal for his outstanding service to Antarctic science and heritage. He'd been working with the Antarctic Heritage Trust, conserving historic buildings in and around the South Pole. Then he became the operations manager at the International Association of Antarctica Tour Operators. And now he's the expedition team leader with Hertegruden Expeditions. They bring scientists, researchers, and other curious human beings to explore and better understand Antarctica and this pale blue dot we're all spinning on. Tudor joined me from Wales, England, where he's clearly between visits. And I wanted to know what was it like 25 years ago? when his eyes first laid upon that great, big, icy continent. I do just remember this overwhelming feeling of, um, you know, just awe and amazement at the the size. And, and I remember, you know, we've sort of been over Antarctica and you see the first big icebergs and you, you see the landform below you. And I'm just thinking, I can't believe I'm here, you know, just overwhelmed with uh, with joy also disbelief and it sounds a bit corny but it almost felt like going home you know I sort of felt like I belonged here but I guess because I've been so so much time wanting it to happen and I guess I've gone through a lot to get there including you know before you go we have a there's a there was then I think they still have a whole briefing 
conference and in that they recommend you to write a will and you think write a will i'm i was 22 or something they said write a will you know why would i do that <laughs> you know say well if something happened you know it can happen so you go through all those preparations and leaving family loved ones friends so when you actually get there it's it's also a bit of relief that you're actually there because it, everything you've gone through to get there including you know medicals full scan of all your teeth in case of you know if you had a wisdom tooth problem how do you deal with it because the the winter is seven months long and there were 15 of us in my first winter and 16 in my second and if you have a severe medical problem you i don't say you're done for but it's a serious issue so yeah by the time you get there it's sort of like i can breathe now and and actually get on with it so yeah a, a mix of all these different things uh which all just yeah, sort of makes your head explode and it brings it all back a bit talking about it now so it's fantastic you ran the world's most southerly post office and convenience store, which is in Port Lockroy, Antarctica. How did that begin, and what was that like? Port Lockroy is one one of the bases run by the United Kingdom Antarctic Heritage Trust, and it's a listed historic site and monument, and it's run as a, a living museum. So it's it's showing visitors how people lived in the 1950s, because that's when the base operated. As part of that, I ended up being operations manager for the Antarctic Heritage Trust to raise funds for the Heritage Trust, as well as partly flying the flag for British Antarctic Territory, which under the Antarctic Treaty, all territorial claims are frozen, but claimants can exercise rights through stamp issue, uh, through coin issue, through being magistrates, a number of things. So British, the British and, and other nations still issue stamps. The, one of the great or exciting things about Port Lockroy is uh, it's on a tiny island and the size of a football pitch, and it's covered in Gentoo penguins. When the base was built there in 1944, it was chosen because no penguins were on the island. But what it does mean now uh, because it's a tiny island, there's no fresh water because all the fresh water is the snow, but all the snow is contaminated with penguin. It's, uh, it stinks. So it's a horrible place to be when you first arrive, but after a few hours, you don't realize that it absolutely stinks. And when visitors come, it, you, you end up stinking, but you don't realize either. And people sort of uh, stay off from you a bit and you go, well, what's that? Oh, yeah, it's just penguin poo. So yeah, there's no water. So we get all our water from the ships that visit. We say, can you bring water? Because there's no water, there's no showers. So we have to ask the ships kindly when they visit, can one of us go on board and clean ourselves, please? And they say, yeah. they go, please come and clean yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and how often do they visit? Uh, because It's um, usually a ship a day. Oh, good. Oh, good. Yeah, yeah. And this is only operational during the summer season, so from mid-November to uh, early March. But part of that, and it's really popular, and it's it's old school. Uh, you know, now everybody sends a text or a Instagram post, but we sell postcards and stamps. And you know, you get there, and a good, really good memento is to send a postcard home. So 
um, when I was there, we were getting, you know, a, a ship a day through that period. We were getting about 15,000 visitors a year, believe it or not. It's, but it adds up. Uh, but we were sending about 80,000 postcards a season. And these postcards with a British Antarctic Territory stamp, we would all, every stamp, they would have to be hand cancelled, you know, with the old fashioned post office stamp in the cold. Go bang, shh, bang. And then we would bag them up and a ship that was going to the Falkland Islands would take them for us. And then they would enter the international postal system in the Falklands via going back to the UK. So they'd go to the UK and then they would go around the world. So these cards, depending on when the ship would arrive, could take, yeah, we would say on average six to eight weeks to get home to wherever you sent it. So by the time you would get your card in Connecticut, it's been all the way up the Atlantic, across the Atlantic to get to you. But the, the post office is really, really um, popular uh, and a good, um, a very useful income stream to conserve the, the historic huts, which is the, the main reason um, for, for selling, selling the stamps. You mentioned these, these penguins. Would you get to like play with them? Touch them? Or do you leave them alone because they're too smelly? Like any any interactions with wildlife you want to tell us about? Well, everything on land in Antarctica is incredibly well protected by the Antarctic Treaty. So the guidelines for penguins is that you you can't go more closer than five meters from a, from a penguin. So when you think of a, a penguin, or you think of wildlife in the northern hemisphere or, or at home, they are just scared crazy of us humans because everything we want to do to them whether it's kill them to eat them or let's not go there in antarctica they're not used to humans we're not a threat so if you wanted to go up and touch a penguin you could but of course they're protected but what that doesn't stop is a penguin penguins are quite inquisitive so penguins do come up to you but they are totally in control of the interaction you know so that's that is really the key is that they need to be totally in control and living in a penguin colony at say at port lockroy one of the amazing things is you know during the day when you get a ship visit it's really really busy but when the ships are gone they're a team of four you know so four of you and i've forgotten how many thousands of penguins but lots of penguins and they're really noisy and really smelly but you you're going about your everyday work, whether it's um, cleaning, you know, the, the side of the base, cleaning the paths, because we try and keep the paths clean so we don't get lots of uh, poo inside the building. But of course, you're doing that and you look around and there's a penguin chick, uh, you know, pecking your boots or something. So you get these absolutely gorgeous and magical interactions that the penguins are having with you and not you are having with the penguins. So you know, and, and then you just have to pinch pinch yourself again, you know, where, what am I doing? Where am I? And you need to take those time to reflect and see, you know, why you're there. And they are, and, and the penguin chicks are just super cute. But part of the work that they do at Port Lockroy is they do a, a penguin monitoring program. It's a permitted program from, from the UK government to actually look at the, the penguins and monitor the breeding success. Because one of one of the unknowns is what effect do we have as humans 
visiting the place on penguin breeding. Uh, so by counting the nests, and uh, then that gives us a really good idea of the population and also on the breeding success. And the next question will say, well, what impact do we have on penguins? The good news is that the, there's been no discernible impact on the breeding success of visitors to Port Lockroy. The bad news is that the outside factors of climate change and climate warming is having an impact. But the, the impacts that we can't measure on water temperature, on where the food, uh, the krill, uh, the ocean currents and those changes are having a big impact. The Gentoo penguin is respond, which are the penguin breed at Port Lockroy, uh, are responding quite well to global warming because they like it a little bit warmer and their population on the western side of the Antarctic Peninsula is expanding and they're moving, they're moving south. The Adelie penguin, which is a slightly smaller penguin, <laughs> They're, they're suffering. They do on the western side of the peninsula. They don't like the warmth. And colonies a bit further south that used to have lots of Adelie penguins have now been the Adelies are almost gone, and the Gentoo penguins have taken over. So, you know, there, there's lots of impact um, that uh, climate change is having, and it's you know it's it's fact that uh, climate is going up. It's fact that the humans are having an impact. Are our carbon emissions, etc., are contributing to that change, that big spike, the fast change in climate. And um, climate change is a natural cycle, but the acceleration of that climate change is, is big. And the Antarctic Peninsula, which is where I've been going for 25 years, is a warming hotspot. The climate has changed, uh, I think it's about 2.8 degrees in the last 20 years. Uh, the climate has gone up. So you do notice the difference. I didn't go to Antarctica last year, but very few people did because of the COVID restrictions. But the previous year, I was at a landing site and the noise of running water from melting snowpack and, and ice was really, really loud. Uh, you know, that same day, the highest temperature was recorded a bit further north in Antarctica on the peninsula. And it's, um, you know, to get days you know to say you know when people come from connecticut or you know anywhere in north america so you know how cold does it get nothing like your winters during the antarctic summer you know 15 i'm so i'm in celsius i'm afraid <laughs> but, but you know 15 16 celsius in the summer the peak summer now is is not unusual on the peninsula but i remember again this is my memory maybe it's tainted you know 25 years ago to go above five degrees in the summer or to get rain was just rare but now it's common with all of this evidence of change in antarctica how confident are you that we as a species will be able to slow the change and how much are you expecting us to continue messing everything up yeah i you know antarctica is is critical you know it's um if you looked at a you know a spider's web or a cog you know i very much see it as the the center of that that mechanism that runs the ecosystems of this world so if you look at things on a geological time scale you know we're, we're talking about a human issue we're, we're affecting uh you know deforestation elsewhere killing off species you know like crazy 
you know, to be blunt, the human species are horrible. You know, we're we're a plague on this planet when you look at it from a planet scale. But in terms of Antarctica and and what we're trying to do and and the future, you can watch as many David Attenborough films as you want, and you go, oh, that's a cute penguin, but you don't see it in context. You know, you're never going to see footage like David Attenborough gets, like his camera person that sat for three months getting one five-second shot. You're not going to see that when you go to Antarctica, but you will see it in context. You will see the interaction of the ice, the melting, the wildlife, the whales, the ocean currents. You will see that, and, and seeing is believing. And when when we take people to Antarctica, educating people is really, really important. So all trips to Antarctica do that educational element. You know, the company I work for, we do lots of science. You know, so we have scientists on board. We have a science center. We So people learn from people that are studying this firsthand and contributing to policymakers. And, you know, policy is made based on evidence. It's also made by lobbying. You know, the, the people that are going, me, 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 you know, outside uh, the Senate, they get heard. People are aware, you know, Greta Thunberg and the, you know, the awareness that she's bringing is, is amazing. So the future, the human future is grim. We're on a course to self-destruction, but I think um, we can slow it down. And um, yeah, we need, we do need to act and we need to be aware and our consumer habits, our behaviors need to change and, and they are changing. So that side is positive. Um, the change in technology in our ships, we've got, you know, we've put hybrid hybrid ships for a passenger vessel, you know, so we're storing energy in these big battery banks and, you know, same as a, an electric um, hybrid car, uh, you know, reusing energy, you know, so the emissions per person are as low as they possibly can be. Um, and does that justify going to Antarctica, having low emissions? No, it doesn't. But the effect of going to these places becoming ambassadors, changing, for me, does justify doing it. Is it fair to say that Antarctica in its own way is like a canary in the coal mine when we think about climate change? It certainly is if people wake up to the fact that the canary's toppled over or started. That's my next question. Over. How's the canary? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, the, the canary is starting to wilt. You know, it's, it's warming. You know, the stories about the big icebergs breaking off. Yes, it is a cycle. And the the naysayers will say, oh, it's just part of there's always been. But the rate of change, you know, that canary is is wilting. And yes, we should be concerned, but we need to wake up to the fact, you know, not just, um, you know, dare I say, you know, politicians, quite rightly, you know, they're, they're the ones that are making the decisions and getting the votes. But until whether we call it the green vote or the environmental vote gains momentum, you know, our, our focus as a society from from money <laughs> needs to change. Uh, but at the moment, money makes the world go round. And it's an old cliche, but it's true. But we need a, a green <laughs> a green dollar bill, which you have, but they need to be greener. <laughs> yeah. Well, thinking about this poor canary has me wondering, are are there any cemeteries? Or something like cemeteries in Antarctica? Because I would imagine that you, when you die, 
maybe you'd like to be permanently inhabiting Antarctica. Is is that is that a possibility? So there are cemeteries, graveyards, memorials, virtually at every any Antarctic base that has been there for some time. Uh, there have been incidents over time, whether it was a, a fire, um, losing people on sea ice. So there have been some pretty tragic incidents um, over time. We do get requests and we do see people spread their ashes overboard into the sea, which um, I'm not saying everyone should do it, but it can be done. But I have, uh, my, my father recently died and he was super organized and he requested his ashes to go in a canal where very near where he was brought up. But I was asked by my family, what do you want with you? And I said, well, half of me, ashes, I want you to, um, if I leave any money and I haven't spent it doing extravagant things, then half, I want you to go on a trip to Antarctica and take half of me and put it in the sea in Antarctica. So a part of me will always be there. Well, Tudor Morgan, thank you so much for talking with me. You're welcome. Thank you. Antarctica. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severindi Martinez, Kelly Langevin, Missy Carvalho, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to shows featuring things like what the eye of a hurricane looks like from the view of a cockpit, and why a sculpturist dubbed the eighth wonder of the world, whose client list includes the Queen of England will never feel satisfied with the tininess of his art. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org slash audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for leaving that review on the show on Apple Podcasts. That really helps people find us. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kion Wolf. And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. You say the kids are out of school. Forget the beach, forget the pool. 